All right. Good evening, everyone. Let's try that one more time. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for those that traveled from afar all the way from New Zealand and India. Seattle is our hometown, so I'm feeling so refreshed. Uh, I'm so encouraged, slept in my own bed last night, and uh, again, so grateful to be here. Uh, I thought I would just spend a few minutes uh, maybe giving you a bit more of a glimpse of our story so that you're not listening to an absolute stranger. Um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea. My parents were both born in what is now called North Korea. My great-grandfather was one of the first people in his small little village outside of a city called Pyongyang to say yes to Jesus. He was so captivated by the gospel that he comes home to my great-grandmother and shares the gospel message of Jesus, and she too says yes to Jesus, and our whole household comes to faith. Now, I was 18 years old when I made my personal decision to say yes to Jesus, but I always share that story with people because I want you to know that I'm not an island to myself. There have been people, my grandparents, my parents, there have been teachers and pastors and mentors who've invested in my life. And all of you are here because there have been others that have poured into you as well. And what an opportunity to consider what it means to continue the celebration of generosity, not just in terms of financial resources, but all of our lives. But we'll get to that. So I immigrated when I was six years old. My wife and I, we've been married 22 years. My wife is a uh, marriage and family therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> it means that she wins every argument in our home. Uh, Minhee, can you just stand really quick so they can know who this person is? Now, I don't know if you know any therapists, but therapists have an important book as well. It's not as important as the Bible, but they have this book called the DSM. It's this humongous, thick book. It's a diagnosis book. And it really upsets me that when we get into a discussion or an argument, she somehow mysteriously grabs that book. And as she grabs that book as I'm trying to make my case, she'll flip the pages and she'll say, hold on for a second, Eugene. It says here that you're wrong. <laughs> and she wins the argument again. It's just not fair. Uh, we have three children, as uh, it was introduced earlier. And I thought I would just briefly share our children's names. Because if you understand our kids' names, you'll have a good idea about our worldview, our theology, our convictions. So our three children, they have both biblical names, but with pop culture references. Because we want them to love Jesus, love the word of God, but we want them to be light and salt to the culture, to the world. So for example, our eldest daughter who's in college, I have two kids in college, her name is Jubilee. From Leviticus, every 50 year, God cancels debt, it's beautiful. And uh, this is a photo of our family. Um, we look this good all the time. Uh, this is from many, many years ago. But her name is Jubilee from Leviticus and also happens to be an X-Men character. Okay, wrong crowd. Um, uh, <laughs> our second daughter, her name is Trinity, which speaks of God's identity. And I don't judge us, but it's a character from this film called Matrix. And then lastly, our son... His name is my favorite. His name is Jedi. Jedi. Now, Jedi comes from Solomon's Hebrew name, which means 
the chosen beloved, the chosen one. And it also, as you know, is from Star Wars. And whenever I share the story with people, inevitably some young folks rush the stage after my talk and they'll say, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? Jedi? Teach us, O Yoda. <laughs> and so I thought I would just briefly share how I convinced my wife. Okay. When we, were, when we found out that we were having a son, I went to my wife and I said, honey, I love you, so excited. Can we name our son Jedi? And she said, no. <laughs> so being a true Star Wars fan, I went to her and I said, we will name our son Jedi. <laughs> For you Star Wars fans. And she again said, no. So we actually thought about this because names actually mean a lot. You were given your name for a specific reason. And so eventually, about eight months into her pregnancy, uh, I went to my wife again. I said, Minhi, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's only fair, only right, only just that you who's carrying this baby in your womb, you should choose our son's name. And she was so happy. A smile came across her face. And so I then said, here's your choice. <laughs> it's Jedi or Frodo. One of these two <laughs> you choose. And I'm so grateful that she chose Jedi because Frodo Cho does not sound very spiritual to me. Now, I have a confession here to make. Um, I don't know if you, well, Earlier tonight, as I was having supper, I really felt the Holy Spirit tell me, change your sermon. I hate that. <laughs> and so I was going out and in from the dining room in between meals, uh, trying to adjust what I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me to share with you. And so with that in mind, I want to just invite you to a word of prayer, and then I'm going to read scripture, and then I want to explain why I think the Holy Spirit made that pivot for us tonight. So Holy Spirit, thank you. God, Jesus, the triune God, we love you. We want everything that we do to be in response to your amazing love and grace. When we speak about generosity, give us a fresh kingdom imagination that goes beyond just financial resources. Give us your heart. Help us to beat to the kingdom's heart. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So I want to read today from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, and it's not typically a text that anyone would use to speak about generosity, but I'll read it, and then I'll explain it, and then we'll see what the Holy Spirit does. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, listen for God's word. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. 
Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Here's verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he then said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I think one of the reasons why I just felt this conviction to change the text, I was going to be speaking about the rich young ruler. But then earlier, just speaking about the common sense idea that you're here because you chose to come to a generosity or a generous conference, it really made sense that you don't necessarily need convincing to be generous. Now, I'm sure there's more that could uh, be excavated in our hearts, but I want you to realize that when we speak about generosity, but really, when we speak about any particular topic, it's really an issue of discipleship. It's a discipleship issue. Earlier this morning, I was having a conversation with a friend who asked me, so Eugene, I heard that you're speaking at this conference. What is this conference about? And as I was trying to explain it, I swerved from defining generosity, not simply as financial resources, but simply explaining to them that I'm speaking really at a discipleship conference. And we have to understand that everything that we do is a reflection of our discipleship as we follow this Lord and Savior named Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I think that's so important is because if we're not careful in a culture, including our church culture, that tends to want to compartmentalize things, we can simply have a section of our lives for our financial resources and feel like we're doing well, we're doing good, but the whole of our lives is not being submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Or we can say, you know what, I'm doing well in these categories, but we can also acknowledge that one of the areas that we struggle in is in the area of generosity, including financial generosity. Our time, our talent, and our treasures. When Jesus speaks in the scriptures about come, follow me, he's not just speaking about our checking accounts. He wants all of our lives. He's not just talking about our church attendance. He also wants every single compartment of our whole lives. And so tonight I want to speak to you a little bit about what that discipleship looks like so that when we give and when we celebrate generosity, it's not in response to fear, guilt, or shame, but in response to the working, the flourishing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I hope that makes sense because I want you to realize fear, guilt, and shame are real things, real emotions, real agendas that work, but it's not sustainable. And it's not the foundation of a flourishing life that God desires for you and for me. 
So what does discipleship look like? Well, in our passage today, we have a very interesting story. And maybe you can just indulge me. Use the stage here uh, with your imagination. And let's use this stage as the prop of our biblical passage from Luke chapter 5. On one side of town, we're told that there is a home and it's packed with people. That when there's rumor that Jesus was going to be present in this particular house, teachers from all around the region, Pharisees, maybe some Sadducees, maybe some members of the Sanhedrin, but most likely a bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law, they had gathered at this home to listen to Jesus Christ. Now, on the other side of town, the Bible does not go into details how far away point A is from point B. But on this side of town, we're introduced to a paralyzed person. And if you read other versions of the Gospels, we're told that there are four people, four friends, who choose to partner together, collaborate together in their discipleship. Now, I want to first talk about this particular story. It's poignant. It's so painful that here are the who's who. These are the folks that make the lists of the most religious, most known, most famous, most wealthy. We don't know. But they're the who's who of their particular community. They've memorized the Pentateuch, memorized the scriptures. They understand the law. They understand here. And yet Jesus is in their midst and they cannot understand that this man, Jesus Christ, is who he says he is. When we read the story, if you're anything like me, I always tend to resonate with this particular crowd. I'm never the Pharisee. Who wants to resonate with the Pharisees? But if we're honest, maybe there is some of that within each of our hearts. And even that needs to submit and surrender itself to Jesus. When I think about the story, I'm reminded of this sometimes. And I know this sounds abrasive and a little provocative, but I think it needs to be said. Sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Jesus are Christians. Are religious people who are so married to particular ways that we lose sight of the living presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. No matter where you are in your spiritual journeys, may your hearts be soft and tender. May we have eyes and ears and hands that are sensing God at work. Already in the multiple conversations that I've had, the one phrase that keeps coming up, and I'm so glad that I'm hearing it, is this. God is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work, but you have to be attentive, have eyes and ears and hands. We have to be aware of the moving of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And it's interesting because when you juxtapose that scene to this scene, we have the antithesis of that group. If that's the who's who, then this is the who's not. People with no names, no titles, they don't have pedigrees and degrees, and yet God uses these particular individuals. Why? Because they choose to submit themselves to discipleship. Now, this is good news. 
And this has nothing to do with our resources. It really has to do with our availability. More important than our resources is our willingness to be available to the working of Jesus through our lives for the glory of God. Now, why is this also good news? Because it's another reminder, another reminder that God uses foolish and broken things for his glory and honor. Such good news. See, we're all imperfect and broken. This is the reason why I think we have to look at discipleship apart from just financial resources. Because if it's financial resources, it's quite possible that you might think, I have it all together. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look at ourselves in the mirror, we realize that as we speak about God's love, every single one of us, imperfect, broken, so flawed, and yet, thanks be to God that the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, only has stories of broken, imperfect people. Only. Sometimes I fear that we tend to domesticate the stories of Scripture to make it seem more palatable. But man, these are some seriously broken, imperfect, jacked up people. And yet, God uses them. God can use each and every single one of us. I'll give you a list, for example. If you read the Scriptures, Adam and Eve lied, concealed, and accused. God does not abandon them. Abraham and Sarah were old, which meant that in that cultural context, they were no longer useful to society, had serious marriage issues. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was insecure. Joseph abused and sold into slavery by his own brothers. Can you imagine? No. Moses had a stuttering and confidence problem, was also a murderer. Elijah was depressed. Gideon was poor, which meant back then that he was cursed by God. Rahab was a prostitute. David had a list too long for this talk. <laughs> Jonah was rebellious, unwilling to listen to God's instructions. John the Baptist was just weird. Martha was a workaholic. The Samaritan woman had numerous failed relationships, ostracized in her own community. Thomas, Thomas had doubts. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the villainous Roman Empire. Paul was a Pharisee. Timothy was timid. My point is, and the good news is, add your name to this list. That's why this is a discipleship conference. God wants all of us. Now, we're not going to have the time to go in-depth in all of the facets and aspects, but there are a couple things from this passage that I think it's so critical for you to understand. That we can learn from these friends who choose to collaborate together, who choose to partner together in bringing this paralyzed person to Jesus. Here's the first one. The first one is they had faith in Jesus. It wasn't perfect faith, but you and I, we can assume that these four friends had an encounter with Jesus. Now, we're not quite sure how, where, or when, but I believe without a shadow of a doubt, they had an encounter with Jesus, and it begins to change their perspective. 
What's the most important thing, in my humble opinion, as a fellow brother in Christ, I would submit to you, the most important thing for each and every single one of us is that you and I have an encounter with Jesus. Not just once during summer camp at Young Life many, many, many years ago. I'm talking about every single day. May your celebration and pursuit and commitment of generosity be in response to an encounter with Jesus. May it be an encounter with Jesus. May the Holy Spirit be alive and thriving and flourishing in your life. Because if it isn't, after a while, it happens to all of us. There's a fine line between following Jesus and Pharisaism. It's just there. After a while, it could become routine. After a while, we might think, I did this, we did this, I'm responsible for this. If we're not careful, it becomes like regurgitation, like dead religion. So these friends, I believe they have an encounter with Jesus and it begins to change their perspective on God, on Jesus, on people that are sick, on enemies, on giving, on church, on marriage. It begins to change the very ways that you look at life. I bet if we have time, and I'm sure over this weekend you'll have the opportunities to have conversations about what happened that something triggered in your life towards more generosity. And I pray that while there may have been catalysts like this conference, like a talk, it's really the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. I think the most encouraging thing that I heard when I got on a conference call with the organizers is they said, we just want to leave room for the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Because we need and we desire for each and every single one of us to have an encounter with Jesus. So these four friends, somehow they hear a message, maybe they witness the miracle, something happened, and it just changes their heart and their worldview. May that happen to each and every single one of us, not as a one-time thing, but may you experience daily encounters with God. See, this is really important because if we're not careful, even good things apart from Jesus can become idolatrous. I don't know if that makes sense. Even generosity for us as Christians apart from Jesus can become idolatrous. Even justice apart from Jesus can become idolatrous. This is why for us as followers of Jesus, what makes us and binds us together here is not necessarily generosity or resources. It's the fact that you and I, we've encountered Jesus. I know you've heard this many a times. You're thinking to yourself, man, this talk is so generic. I want you to hear this really well. It's maybe the most important thing that I can tell you, and it's this. God loves you. Friends, most of you I've never met. The greatest privilege that I have as a preacher is to share with people who've never heard or heard this message a thousand times is this. God loves you. May everything flow out of that conviction.
that God loves you. Sometimes people ask me that question, well, how do I know that God truly loves me? And I really believe that the best way, at least for me, it's not perfect, but the best way I can try to summarize why I know without a shadow of a doubt God loves you is this. God knows everything about you. Everything. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I still struggle with insecurity. And so sometimes I'm trying to project a certain image of myself. So if you were to follow me on Instagram, my life is perfect. I look tall in every single one of my pictures. It's amazing what phone angles can do to your height. And I hope that makes sense. We're projecting a particular kind of image. God knows everything about you. And he still loves you. If I'm losing you, let me give you an example. Some of you look glazed or you're from the East Coast, okay? <laughs> so let me explain this. My wife and I, we've been married 22 years. We met 23 years ago. First date, we had five intense dates in Korea before we were in a long-distance relationship for one year. So we knew we only had one week to get to know each other before we were letter writing. Email had just started coming in. We had no idea what it was. And so first date, we're having a nice, pleasant meal in Seoul, South Korea. If you ever watch Korean drama, imagine a Korean drama scene and there's music in the background. We're having this meal. And then she asks what I consider to be the most scariest question a man could ever receive. She says to me, Eugene, tell me everything about your life. And I started freaking out. In a moment, like millions of synapses crossed my mind. I have no idea what that means, but it makes me sound smart. Millions of synapses crossed my mind, and I was wrestling with this. I was like, do I tell her everything, or do I tell her the Christian version? The Christian version. I don't know if you know the Christian version. It goes like this. It goes like, Minhi, um, 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 she's right there. Uh, Minhi, um, I once was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> I once was blind, but now. And here's the reason why I was so scared. Because in my mind, I thought to myself, if I told this woman everything of my life, how could she possibly be interested in a second date? Listen, God knows everything about you. And how do we know God loves you? He's still pursuing you. We need that kind of encounter every single day. That the God of the universe, so that anything and everything that you do is a celebration of God's love and grace and pursuit for you. Listen carefully. If we're not careful, even good things apart from Jesus can grow to become idolatrous. This is why it has to always be framed in a discipleship issue 
It's because Jesus is Lord and Savior. Just in case, one last point, and I'll get to the next thing is this. Sometimes I'm concerned in our current state of the church and our culture, we can talk nebulously about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is really important. It matters. But as we're speaking about the kingdom of God, never forget that in the kingdom of God, there is a king, and his name is Jesus. And we need to have an encounter with that Jesus. So that's the first thing, is that they believed they had faith in Jesus. The second thing is, they had a growing sense of love for neighbor. So if the first point is about loving God, acknowledging God, having faith in Jesus, the second point that I want you to walk away from is that they had a growing capacity, a growing awareness, a growing heart, a growing theology, a growing awareness of neighbor. And by neighbor, we're not just simply talking about those that look like you, think like you, feel like you, or even vote like you, which is so challenging in our world today. That's what Jesus means by love your neighbor, not just carbon copies of you. And so when they see this person, they're moved by compassion. Sometimes we have to be generous, yes, in response to Jesus, but in addition to a response to Jesus, we see a growing pain, a loss, uh, issues in our cities, in our state, in our larger country, where we realize surely God cares for these human beings created in the image of God, and I get to be a part of what God's doing around the world. They had Compassion. I don't know about you, but we live in a culture and in a world today where we desperately need a revival of compassion, where we care for one another. We care for the lost, the last, and the least. Now, one of the things that you might not know is in the biblical times, in the times of Jesus, when someone was paralyzed like this person, it wasn't just a physical poverty that they had, but they also had a spiritual or an emotional poverty because every single person that saw that paralyzed person concluded in their mind that this person was cursed by God. It was that false, dangerous, toxic theology that perpetuated the marginalization and oppression that took place. When you read Amos in the Old Testament, God is furious because he sees believers of Yahweh who are perpetuating false theology to explain why certain people are in the conditions that they're at. These friends have a, just a revival of compassion. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that in our world today, there is so much pain all around us. And sometimes people will ask me, well, Pastor Eugene, how do you wrap your mind around so much brokenness in the world? Depending on what sources you read, 30 to 40 million people are caught in forms of human trafficking. 
660 million people don't have access to clean water. Every single day, approximately 12 to 14,000 children under the age of five die every single day because of the complexities of human poverty and hunger. And the list goes on locally, in our country, and around the world. And you might be thinking, how do we wrap our minds around so much brokenness in the world? And I would submit to you, it may not be the answer that satisfies all of your intellectual prowess, but we begin with our hearts. We got to care. I know it sounds bad. Sometimes if I can just be very direct, we have to give a damn. We have to care. Even in a culture and context where it sometimes feels like compassion fatigue, may the Holy Spirit, as we have an encounter with Jesus every single day, deepen our capacity to care. Why? Because every single human being is created in the image of our Lord God creator. Amen. And so we celebrate generosity because we celebrate a growth in compassion for each and every single one of us. You know, in the time that I have left, maybe I want to just share a little bit about our personal family story. About uh, 12, 13 years ago, I had a chance to visit a country called Burma. And I met this family that you'll see here on the screens. We were visiting a makeshift school in the jungles of Burma, and I met this particular elder and his family. Some of you might know that there is this humongous, horrible crisis called the Rohingya crisis. What's not also being recorded is the genocide that's going on towards Christians in Burma as well. In the 1980s and 90s, the United Nations deemed the genocide that was going on in Burma as the same scale as what was going on in Darfur. Horrible, tragic. And so we had a chance to visit a makeshift school among a particular ethnic Burmese Karen community. 80% Christians in this particular community. And when we went to visit this particular classroom, uh, it didn't even have a name for this village because they were constantly fleeing away from the military government. But as I entered this particular classroom, use your imagination, there's about 15 tables, 15 chairs, all mix and match. They're all old and dirty, and there was this overused, scarred, greenish chalkboard on one of the sides of this classrooms in the jungles. This class was for children ages from or first grade to fifth grade. There were about 15 students. I walk in, and I was shocked absolutely petrified by a photo, a poster that was plastered to the scarred greenish chalkboard. My host, sensing that I was disturbed, actually invites me to come closer. Reverend Cho, Reverend Cho, come closer. In his broken English, he says, Reverend Cho, come closer, come closer. And with lots of trepidation reservation, I go a little closer. He gets on his knees and he begins to explain this poster, the size of this podium. You're probably wondering, what is this poster? It was a collage of photos of men, women, and children with missing body parts and blood oozing out of them. 
in a classroom for first to fifth graders. He gets on his knees and he says, Reverend Cho, and he points to the last row of these collage of photos and he points to these greenish, grayish, metallic contraptions. And then he says, Reverend Cho, these are landmines. And we must teach our children, avoid landmines. And it made sense. I had the burden and the privilege of meeting some of the kids who were survivors of these uh, mines. And I met that particular elder gentleman and I asked him, what are your challenges in your community? Probably not the most insightful question. I said, what are your challenges? And two things really said. One was that there was still a sense of joy in his heart. But the second thing that he says, knowing that I had visited a classroom, he says, paying teachers' salaries hard. So I asked him, how much are their salaries? He says, sticks out four fingers and then says, $40 US. So in my naive Western mind, I said, oh, per day. And he reacted just like some of you, chuckled politely. And I said, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 a week? He smiles and he just shakes his head. And I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 a month? And he shakes his head again. And at that moment, I'm just shocked. Finally, he says, $40 a year. I came back from that trip, shared the story with my wife. We decided to spend some time praying about what we could do. I thought I would craft a nice sermon, write a blog post, put something on Facebook, send a tweet. But the Holy Spirit did something very upsetting. The Holy Spirit, both for my wife and I separately, convicted us to give up a year's wages. Now, I say that not to sound boastful. I hope you can receive it with that spirit of grace. Now, we don't have full disclosure. My salary as a pastor back then was $68,000 a year. We didn't have $68,000 just hiding under the mattress somewhere. It took us three years to save, to simplify our lives, to sell off things that we didn't need, like my 1989 first edition blue Mazda Miata that I call Blue Thunder. <laughs> no, I don't miss it. <laughs> and during this time, God gives us this vision for a movement called One Day's Wages. Now, I wanted to share one statistic, and I got to be done pretty soon. So $68,000, I know that you know that Jeff Bezos, my good buddy here in Seattle, he doesn't know me. He's the richest person in the world. A lot of folks don't know that I also happen to be among the wealthiest people in the world. My rank, I'm the 52nd million, 40,000, 162nd richest person in the world. You better respect me. Which I know sounds very unimpressive. Do you know that in context of the world's population, it puts me in the top 0.86 percentile of wealth in the world? 
This is the reason why when we speak about generosity, this is a discipleship issue. It's not just for those who fit a particular income or status. It's for all of us, which is the reason why I think it was so good. I don't know if the Seattle Times did this intentionally or not. But with Paul Allen's passing recently, people celebrating his philanthropy, which is rightfully deserved. I loved the article that came out in the Seattle Times two days ago. What was the article? It was a Christian couple unabashed, unashamed followers of Jesus who said they're Pentecostals. There's only four of them in Seattle. <laughs> who decides to save for months, if not years, so that in the 50th year of them owning an apartment complex here, a small apartment, in the 50th year, they decide to offer free rent to all of their tenants as an expression of their faith in Jesus. That is beautiful. So my wife and I, we felt convicted to start this organization called One Day's Wages, took three years, gave up one, day's wa one year's wages, and we invited people around the world, would you consider giving one day's wages, at least once a month or once a year? And it's been amazing to see God at work. In the past eight and a half, nine or so years, we've had about 12,000 donors from over 40 countries give $7 million. All so that we can invest it in projects to help people created in the image of God lift themselves out of poverty. God is good and gracious. I got to close with this. But the most important thing that my wife and I have learned during this process is sometimes when you're convicted to do good things, good acts, we think it's because God wants to use you to help other people, to save other people, to rescue other people, to feed other people. And that's partly true. What many of us don't know until you actually engage in generosity is that you realize that God calls us through generosity not just to help others, but to liberate us. Sometimes from the abyss of greed that can capture our hearts. I don't know if that's your story, but even for a middle class family like ours, you'd be amazed how enslaved we could be to that question of abundance versus scarcity. And so we've learned that the best part of wanting to change the world is that you're going to be changed in the process. The best part about generosity is the flourishing that you'll experience.